This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest. Um, uh, he's uh, sort of one of these uh, parallel track, kindred, somewhat kindred spirits on a whole bunch of issues. He's got a great podcast that I um, check out all the time called The, the Long Game. Uh, I should probably say his name at some point, or maybe I'll just keep you in suspense. His name is John Ward. He's a senior political correspondent for Yahoo News, host of The Long Game. Um, he's written about all sorts of uh, stuff for all sorts of places, mostly about politics for over a long time. His most recent book is Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John Ward, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. I feel like you were kind of playing with one of those smartless introductions where they talk about the guest for like five minutes before they introduce them to the other two. I sometimes find myself doing that because I know that yeah. until I say someone's name, they won't chime in so I can just get in whatever I want. <laughs> but um, uh, so your you know, standard question on here about for, for people pushing a book is um, what's your book about? So what's your book about? Uh, my book's about growing up evangelical, really, at the at the at the start of things. And then it's about um, actually becoming even more evangelical in college because um, I grew up in that subculture, didn't care all that much about it, even though my dad was a pastor, was really more into sports, but also didn't know much outside of that culture because it was a very thick church bubble that we lived inside of. But um, I started to kind of inch out of the bubble, got pulled back in, um, became super intense about it during college. And then kind of right after college burned out, um, and made a break for going out into the, the, the big wide world. Um, partly as a result of some of the things I learned, experienced, read in college, um, at the university of Maryland, and then, um, became a journalist two years out of college unpaid internship at the Washington times eight years there. Um, and, and I would say the second half, uh, is about my life and career in journalism and the intersection or the, the interplay or the tension between the way I was raised and the things I was learning in journalism and just outside of that bubble really. And then the last third is about the last several years of all of these things coming to a head really, um, in the political arena which, you know, on, uh, in the Republican Party, there was a lot of evangelical support for Donald Trump and just my reaction to that, my processing of that, my personal interactions with my own family through that. And um, 
coming out on the other side, a bit worse for the wear, but um, uh, having some learned some lessons, I think. And we should just for listeners um, edification, you were one of the founder founding uh, reporters for the Daily Caller back in the day, right? Correct. After eight years at the Washington Times, I had been I had been uh, covering the the White House for the Times for about three years, and then in late two thousand nine, Tucker and Neil Patel, two co founders, Tucker Carlson, um, uh, they uh, I can't remember how I got in touch with them. It might have been through Mike Allen actually, um, but you know they reached out and hired me as one of their first uh, names. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really that much of a name, but it was something. Um, and so they hired me a couple months before we launched the daily caller. And I, I was there for about 14 months. All right. So let's start back. Why don't you just sort of tell me about the story of, of, um, we will, we will find our way to politics soon enough. Uh, when is there, it's unavoidable. So it's, it's funny. You grew up in the DC suburbs, which is just not a place that, um, I associate strongly with, with, profound evangelical movements. Um, how did that work? Where'd you grow up? How did, you know, what was your childhood like? It is really interesting because I remember watching this mini series on the, the Branch Davidians. Um, I think it was on Netflix called Waco. Um, it's like a six part series. It was really good. And there were parts of that show that, that showed like the culture of that cult that I could identify with just sort of the social control um, aspects of it, the, the reliance on a charismatic leader aspects of it. But, you know, our church was in the, was 30 miles outside of Washington, DC. So there were very few of the cultural markers that I think allowed the branch Davidians to kind of veer off into true insanity. Um, but we had some of those, those, you know, hallmarks and how that came about, um, there weren't the, there weren't the guns and the polygamy, but there was a lot of the uh, cult of personality around the, the the leader. And how that came about was my parents. That's a bad trade, by the way. I mean, you're taking all the fun, the guns and the polygamy, you know, out. <laughs> you know, it's real eat your spinach kind of stuff here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if you know those who read the book will see that it it, it truly did take the fun out of most of it. But um, and that's why I burnt out. But my my dad was raised Catholic, and his dad was a was a college football Hall of Famer in the early fifties, and then a, a college football coach. And uh, so they moved around a lot, but they were kind of based here in the D.C. area. And then my mom grew up in the D.C. suburbs as well. Her mom uh, was Presbyterian, and so we're talking early seventies here, and the Jesus movement happened. and And there's a film out right now. Um, about that called the Jesus Revolution, which is very popular among a lot of uh, conservative religious folks, I think. Um, and they both got wrapped up in that. And so they and their friends started a church um, that was meeting as a Bible study for years here in D.C. Uh, at one of the, the churches. They would meet on like a Sunday night, probably after the services were, were done in the morning at the church. Um, and then it became an actual church that they started around 77 year I was born. Um, and the hallmarks of the church were just that it was non-denominational and it was uh, a, re- a reaction against mainline uh, Protestantism, uh, traditional Catholicism, but also a reaction against the, um, the, the ways that they were disappointed with the 60s and hippie culture 
they were looking to marry sort of that ethos of free love with, um, you know, a more conservative religion and, and an authentic religion. And it was a pretty powerful experience for a lot of those people um, that they're still, I think, in a lot of ways referencing back to um, in how they live their lives and how they experience their faith. Um, and, and so that's how it came about. I mean, this was a national thing. There was a lot of it in California. There were pockets of it in other places as well. Um, but you know, they happened to, to be right outside DC. And, um, um, as a pseudo intellectual Demi Jew from the upper West side of Manhattan, um, I'm going to, I'm going to run interference for some, at least some listeners and ask, because um, it was interesting when I was listening to you, I, you did a podcast with Russ Moore. And for people who are looking for more theology than I'm going to offer here, I highly recommend they go find that one. Um, um, can you just explain to the, the, the layperson what the Jesus movement was? Also, what is, what is new Calvinism um, and what makes it new versus the old Calvinism? The Jesus movement, I've already kind of gotten into... Um, the cultural historical factors that brought it about. But in practice, it was a very charismatic slash quasi-Pentecostal form of Christianity. And it was very focused on um, an authentic personal experience that was often very emotional and, and ecstatic in, in practice. So church services had a lot of what you would traditionally associate with Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, raising your hands, there's a rock band, there's drums, guitar, all that stuff. Um, and then we didn't handle snakes, so we weren't Pentecostals. Um, but there were other things like, you know, people coming into the service and saying, God told me this, God told me that, applying it to an individual or to the corporate congregation. And, and then there was also that ethic throughout the leadership. They put a lot of emphasis on direct messages to them from God, which of course is also you know, problematic, but, um, and so there was just this very outwardly focused, outwardly expressive, um, practice, a lot of focus on, uh, the spirit world demons as well. And that, um, I would say continued for, for several years, but then around, you know, the nineties, this is 20 years into this experiment. Um, our church got into Calvinism and that was also something that was happening at a national level. There were a lot of evangelical churches that were embracing Calvinism. And I think they called it a new Calvinism because it had kind of been out of practice, out of fashion for, for quite a while. It wasn't, you know, Calvinism is obviously hundreds of years old, but, um, but our church was one of many that embraced this. And there were a couple of different, uh, you know, drivers of this. One of which was a book called, uh, systematic theology by a guy named Wayne Grudem, who, um, you know, had some uh, legitimate academic credentials. I think he went to Harvard, that sort of thing. Um, but our pastor, C.J. Mahaney, was one of several pastors along with Al Mohler, who's probably the best known of them, um, and a couple others, Lig Duncan and, and, and Mark Dever, and John Piper, who's also pretty well known, who started organizing conferences to talk about, you know, this, this new focus on theology. So the only real applicable point of that, I think, is that my experience growing up was pretty interesting because I, I, I went through, I got to experience up close two major streams of evangelical non-denominational Christianity 
one of which is the more charismatic form and the other is the more Calvinistic form. Um, and I, in the book, I trace kind of the arc of those two streams of evangelicalism through my story, but also through the stories of a, a leader from each stream, C.J. Mahaney being one and a guy named Lou Angle being the other, who Lou Angle is now a big part of what scholars call the New Apostolic Reformation, which they were um, huge. They were, one scholar calls them the, the backbone of Christian Trumpism. Um, the more Calvinistic folks tend to stay away from politics, and the more charismatic folks have become, over the last 10 to 20 years, intensely political and very partisan towards the GOP. So just, this is purely out of my own curiosity, in the 70s, I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost a decade older than you, so, um, and you probably watched less TV than I did. Um, but as a kid, I don't know. I actually did watch a fair amount, um, but just wasn't allowed to watch a lot of certain shows. Yeah. So in this, in the, that's what a little bit in the seventies, uh, but more in the eighties, there were sort of not too subtle. Like I'm thinking the one that pops into my head is like an episode of one day at a time, uh, where, um, like they were trying to keep Valerie Bertinelli from falling in with this, these young evangel evangelizing Christians who would give out flowers and whatnot. And, um, and they struggled mightily to try to explain what was so terrible about these people who just wanted to be very, very nice. And, um, but there was the way, the way Hollywood sort of conveyed that these people were scary was by how nice they were, right. They were just too nice. And, um, which appealed to someone growing up who grew up in New York city in the 1970s and 1980s is like super niceness is to be distrusted. Um, um, is that part of this national movement or is this just something that I just scooped up and stuck in my pop, my pop culture head? Do you think, I mean, was there a national profile to it that was getting national attention or was this sub Rosa, the Jesus movement? Yeah. Yeah, no, Time and Newsweek both ran cover stories where it was, you know, there was a huge cover spread. Lots of guitar playing, right? I mean, like... Yeah, and music actually was a huge part of it. There was a huge musical subculture um, that drove a lot of it. Larry Norman, um, Phil Kage, uh, Keith Green, Second Chapter of Acts. There's a, this became a huge part of, the, of that culture, I would say. And, and you see it now today in the, in the influence of the contemporary Christian music uh sector okay so you know a big part of what you write about and i should be honest with with listeners uh that i've only dipped a toe into the book because of reasons i was explaining to john beforehand but john's a wonderful writer and it's if these issues are remotely interesting to you you should definitely um pick up a copy um so one of the you know one of the the central points of the book is is this idea of spiritual abuse um what is spiritual abuse and how does it play into your story? Um, I, was, I was talking to a guy named Dan Koch, who uh, hosts a, per, a podcast called You Have Permission. He's actually an expert on spiritual abuse. Um, and I told the same thing to, to Russell Moore, um, you know, as an academic or scientific category or term, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on it. So with that caveat... I think it goes back to what I said earlier about the epistemology of, you know, hearing the divine. Um, because uh, I think when you set up a system in which 
leaders are given carte blanche to say that whatever thought pops into their head is uh, coming from from the creator. Um, that uh, if especially if there aren't a lot of other guardrails in place um, to check their power, uh, that leads pretty quickly to um, many ways in which you know they can wield that authority. Um, however they want really. And a lot of it growing up was fairly mild. Um, it was just, we, they kept the world that we lived in very small. And, um, and so they were able to kind of have their way. I think one of the biggest evidences of, of how things went awry in ways that did real damage was the way that they handled sexual abuse cases. Um, and this is obviously, you know, something that's happened in uh, the Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist Convention. This is this is uh, something of a of a huge problem. But the way we handled it or didn't handle it in our church was the leaders basically would um, pressure the parents many times to have their child, the victim, forgive the abuser, and it wasn't reported to authorities. Um, and, uh, you know, there was one guy, Nate Morales, who's been convicted and sent to, sent to prison for uh, crimes against several uh, young boys at the time. Um, but there's allegations. Um, I don't know how many of them have gone through the courts. And C.J. Mahaney's uh, church uh, and organization, Sovereign Grace Ministries, uh, they may have changed their main sl- name slightly, but um, they they've come under pressure just in the last several years from a from, from an advocate named Rachel Denhollander, um, who was one of the gymnasts abused by Larry Nasser and spoke at his trial, and uh, she's had some interactions in, uh, with Sovereign Grace, and she's put pressure on them to undergo an, a, an independent outside investigation. And as of today, they've continued to refuse to do that. So the hallmarks here are just sort of keeping the the world and the culture as closed and small as possible to maximize control. Um, you know, everybody in our church sort of only associated with each other. I went to an elementary school that was run by the church and all the kids were members or were children of members. All the teachers were members of the church. So it was a very closed system. Uh, yeah, no, and I should, you know, as, as it says in the Talmud, if you're not for yourself, who will be, uh, at the dispatch, uh, David French and Nancy French did some great stuff on Camp Canacook. Um, which I clearly it's an example of the kind of thing that you're you're talking about. Well, and again, and again, it comes it comes back to this idea that we and it, and it arises out of the very dynamic, amazing experience they had in the '70s that created a sort of a hubris that led to a sense that we knew better than other people and we were more righteous than other people, which again are kind of hallmarks of cultishness. But that like led to this attitude towards law enforcement. Um, and outside, you know, authorities that they would just muck it up and we could handle it better. And that was really, I think, the origins of the problem. So is that when, when, um, when you talk about how a movement failed a generation, is that the essence of the failure? I mean, that's a component of it. Uh, I think what I'm saying more, uh, predominantly is that um, I was taught a faith growing up that I think had a lot of good in it. And I think over time, 
it became diluted and even corrupted um, by a series of factors. Um, I think the insularity and the bubble um, was one of the, the drivers of it. But I think one of the main outcomes has been that uh, the Christianity expressed by a lot of evangelicals today um, has lost a lot of its uh, potency um, because it's been sort of co-opted by materialism and, um, you know, the American dream. Um, and its political expression has been manipulated and uh, taken captive by the Republican Party. I don't think or argue that evangelicals have to vote um, for one party or the other, but uh, pretty clearly a lot of evangelicals, you know, feel like they have no option other than to vote for Republicans. And I think it's that sort of lack of political imagination, a lack of political sophistication that has uh, turned even the evangelical voting block from something that could bring um, a healthy vitality to politics and sort of a check, a prophetic check, if you want to call it that, into politics. It's turned it from that into something that is um, really just something that somebody like Donald Trump can manipulate and use however he wants simply by promising he'll um, nominate uh, conservative judges to the court. Which I think we saw, you know, I mean, he could, as long as they, they said that they were pro-life and would nominate pro-life judges, uh, there was, that, that was a lot of what created this dynamic where he could go into Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and get away with it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, now that we're moving, we're segueing a little bit into the, the political room. So I, like, I mean, let's put it this way. Uh, I'm an outsider to this stuff. I've spent 20 plus years writing in defense. Well, I should, up until about seven years ago, um, I, I would routinely write in defense of evangelical Christians against what I think of as a sort of elite snobbish attitude towards organized Christianity. Um, I've written a lot in defense of the Catholic church historically as an institution, less of the theology because, you know, I'm not committed to the theology. Um, and, uh, but one of the things I've always liked about the Catholic church is our appreciative of the Catholic church, which I think we can agree has made mistakes. <laughs> mistakes were made by the Catholic church, but, um, I have a, I, you know, we've, we've talked before about the importance of institutions. One of the things I've always appreciated about the Catholic church is that it's an old institution and old institutions know where to bend where new institutions will often break. Right. Um, and, um, I would often argue that the obsession with people in Middle East studies for what Martin Kramer would write about often was uh, how they needed a new Martin Luther in the Middle East missed the history history entirely, and that what the Middle East needed was a new Pope um, because it was all the Muslim Martin Luthers who brought this this intense religious passion 
um, and a lot of the iconoclasm and other sorts of things that that defined early Protestantism. You know, people forget that Protestantism wasn't a move to the squishy moderate center in response to the Catholic Church. It was, a, I mean, right and left are kind of a meaningless thing in this context, but just for illustrative purposes, it was a radical move rightward in many sort of respects in that it wanted to take its the dogma much more seriously and much more emphatically because the Catholic Church had become too worldly and had made too many compromises. And if you look at the rise of the Salafists and the Wahhabis, it was very much like the early, uh, you probably know how to pronounce it, Zwingilians and those kinds of guys from, you know, the 15th century. And, um, and um, that sort of passion is the thing that I have to say personally, the thing that marks me temperamentally as a conservative more than anything else prior to any conservative ideological or dogmatic or philosophical commitments is I find enthusiasm really off-putting. Um, and I mean that in sort of every sense. And so you're, you're, the, the way you talk about how emotionalism is manipulative um, and the, the sort of the charismatic um, uh, sort of getting caught up in the spirit kind of stuff, right or wrong always just sort of turned me off and makes me feel separate. I don't even like rock concerts very much because I don't like that sense of that. Oh my gosh, everybody's into it. And, um, the only place where I can kind of get into it is like at sport, you know, sporting events where it is kind of fun to just be on your side chanting against the other side. But I see that more as sort of a subliminal way to, uh, take the war instinct and channel it towards generally harmless things. But the ecstatic thing. So I want to read you this, this, this one of my favorite quotes from Eugene Peterson, um, who was a um, um, listeners. I know he was a Presbyterian minister and scholar and theologian. And I, I quote it often when I'm explaining why I don't like crowds. I just don't like crowds. Um, and he said, classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence, i.e., religious meaning apart from God, as revealed through the cross of Jesus. And then he lists them. He says through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, and through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. And I think that like this is a very real thing, that people, there is a feeling of, of ecstatic belonging that one gets when one is in a crowd, particularly when one is in a mob. Um, that freaks me out. Like, I just really don't like it. And, and I, I see that when you talk about the emotionalism, and I know I'm filibustering, but when you talk about the emotionalism that has sort of um, led the church astray, um, it's that very emotionalism that I think can lead to the things like Christian nationalism, can lead to this idea that your passion alone is a good theological barometer of truth which to me is wildly anti-enlightenment and anti-reason. Um, you know, we are, and also anti-Christian to a certain extent. There's a lot of stuff in Christianity about rejecting your instincts, rejecting your, your animalistic impulses, and instead contemplating being prayerful or you know, in some traditions, you know, Thomistic, you know, using reason to figure out what conscience rightly understood is. And to me, I see a lot of 
the Christianity stuff that I, that that really turns me off today as an attempt to find ecstasy through crowds. Okay, I'm done. What do you think of all that? There's a, a verse I think in the in the book of Proverbs, um, chapter three, that says, "Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight." And I've had that verse quoted to me by people who say you just need to, you know, not use your brain and uh, just read the Bible and uh, that'll tell you where to go. But I actually, I think that book is telling us that, uh, or that, that verse is telling us, you know, don't lean on your own perspective um, as the only source of how you interpret reality. Um, and yes, obviously, you know, if you're a Christian, lean on your, 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 your text um, and on prayer and on other people. And, and a lot of Christians would agree with that, but I've from a young age been uncomfortable with groupthink or group momentum in a lot of the same ways you have. And I think some people have that instinctively more than others. And I can't explain that. I don't know why that is, but it has been something that's always been part of my DNA. And so as much as I was in the church and then even like a total zealot in my college years, that always stayed with me. And it's why I wrote this book at the end of the day. Um, and there's so many different directions I could go, but when you, when you look at non-denominational evangelicalism, it's been anti-institutional for a very long time. Um, Frances Fitzgerald is her name. And, and she wrote a history of evangelicalism a couple of years ago that talks about the, the ways that evangelicalism in the, 18th century was anti-institutional and anti, um, it was also, you know, a, had a class element to it where it was made up of a lot of people from lower education and lower income strata who were, uh, looking for a, a, a less, um, formalistic, less controlling, uh, form of religion that felt more authentic and, and more imminent to them. Which is very American, right? I mean, there's something very American about that, you know? Yeah. And so that's been kind of a through line. Um, but when you throw off constraints and you turn your back on history, um, you do open a Pandora's box. And that's what's happened over the last several decades, because there's been other other things that have converged with it. You know, um, our, our politics as a result, I think, of technology, television, the Internet has become more and more. Uh, democratic. This is something you've done a lot of work on. I've done a lot of work on, um, and and it's and you know, we were talking before we started recording it about the loss of republicanism. Um, that's been just a probably a, 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 definitely a nationwide dynamic, maybe a global dynamic. I think definitely a global. You know, you see that's part of the rise of populism. So you throw all this together, and um, and you have what you see with the new apostolic reformation, which is this group that was hardcore Trumpists. And I think one of the more well-known figures that people might know who kind of comes out of that world is Doug Mastriano, who ran for governor of Pennsylvania uh, and lost. But um, you know, the, these are people that are listening to leaders like Dutch Sheets and Lance Wall now, uh, other folks like that who are literally just sort of making things up and saying, God told them this and God told them that um, there are real no, there really are no guardrails at, at this point on a lot of that. And it can go any which direction it fuses with a lot of QAnonism, that sort of thing. So that's why I think things like uh, uh, John Rausch's book, the constitution of knowledge are so important is because we have to 
figure out a way to have a conversation that's culturally, you know, very inclusive and, and includes all stakeholders about how do we how do we get to a place where we can agree on what counts as public knowledge? Not um, this is the thing that I even just read a review of his book the other day by a person um, who's not really he's conservative, but he's not like part of the NAR or anything. But he just had a problem with the fact that um, there there was no room in this constitution of knowledge for you know, explicitly Christian statements of faith. Well, the whole point is it's a conversation about what everybody can agree on to move society forward. You can bring your principles, but you have to translate them into, into something that is persuadable to, to everybody. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but no, no, um, no, it's helpful. I mean, it's, it's useful uh, on, on this, this translating things into the public sphere. This is something I've, I've thought about a lot because there are a lot of left, wingers who really hated the fact that over the last 25 years evangelical americans became so pro-israel and um there were particularly there were a lot of jews that made very uncomfortable and you know and particularly the kind of jews i grew up with um and my response to that always was um who cares about the motives Right. I mean, um, you know, the in a democracy, everybody's got different motives for things. What you judge people on are their public arguments and their public actions. And um, um, and the so this idea that. Which I do think is a fair criticism of not making room for people of, of faith to be part of a conversation is a bad idea. And there are people who very much would like to keep people of faith out of the conversation. And, you know, one of my responses to that is you do know that people who say follow the science tend to be people of a kind of faith too. You know, it's not like they, the people who say follow the science more, you know, not, I'm not talking about actual scientists who shouldn't use the phrase. Um, but, the average person who says we believe in science or, you know, in this house, that kind of thing, they have no friggin' clue how, you know, extra water molecules and or carbon molecules in the atmosphere are, can lead to global warming. They are just putting their faith in a certain group of experts. And I'm not saying the experts are wrong. That's not my argument. It's a, it's simply that the experts can be wrong and um, you still need, and, 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 and that's the, in many ways, that is the best defense of some of these people. Some of these people just take certain positions because the people they hate take the opposite position. And that's not a great motive either, you know? And, and so what you have to do is you actually have to listen to what their actual argument is for why they have their position. And if their actual argument is simply, well, I hate the people who are for school choice, right? Or I hate the people who want school prayer that's not a good argument against school prayer, you know? Um, and so you'd ha you have to take people by how they're actually going to engage in democratic discourse um, and in, 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 in political persuasion and not get hung up on the motive thing. The motive thing is how you get caught up in giving yourself permission structure to say certain people are my enemy and we can do whatever we want to, to punish them. And, and, and any policy that punishes them is, is rewarding in its own right. And, um, 
But it does seem like if there's a group of Americans who have, and you don't want to paint with too broad a brush, and I know you don't do this, but from a distance, it's become much more difficult for me to defend politically active evangelical Christians who wear their evangelical Christianity on their sleeve. Um, because a lot of it just looks like um, uh, pretextual reasons to vote Republican and to support Donald Trump and really have nothing to do with sincere theological arguments of any kind. And I like arguments, right? So like, if you tell me God told me this, I can't do anything with that. If you tell me these are the reasons why I'm doing this, I can at least have a conversation with you. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the evangelical thing, but I want to get to motive and then uh, something I've been thinking about, which is intellectualism. But um, I would say just broadly, you know, I think my book is an attempt to lay out the ways in which a lot of evangelical political engagement has, has been uh, underwhelming <laughs> would be one, one word for it. Um, I try to tell my story in a way that illustrates the deep cultural historical roots of this, which are, which are multiple. There's a number of things. A lot of it starts with the isolationism that leads to uh, a sense of being an antagonist towards culture, not a stakeholder. Uh, it also makes one um, less discerning of what's actually going out there, which makes one uh, more able to be manipulated by a crisis merchant or a conflict and entrepreneur or a demagogue. So, uh, you know, the emotionalism plays into it as well. That, I think, um, degrades the uh, level of intellectualism um, at play, the level of critical thought. I also do want to say, I, 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 hope I, I hope the average reader feels like I go out of my way to um, explain and empathize with why people are in these churches and, and what is attractive about these churches to them and, and explain what that is and explain why this charismatic practice is so compelling to so many people. It's not as if there are millions of people in these churches because they hate them. They like going to these churches and there are legitimate reasons for them. But I think what I'm trying to trace out is the systemic impact um, outside of the church of, of, this, of this culture. Um, and I think, you know, to your point about motive, it's interesting because I, I still even recently have seen um, signs of this in myself where I think a lot of evangelical culture really puts too much emphasis on motive rather than on action. And so speaking as somebody who came from that world, I think I was brought up to assume that if my motives were good, then that was what counted the most, not the and, and not the quality of what I was doing or the outcome or the consequences, but just really the motive. So that's interesting. And then, you know, I mentioned a sort of a degraded intellectualism or critical thought. And, and I definitely make the point that there's a lot of anti-intellectualism in, in evangelical culture. And when I went on Hugh Hewitt's show, he really you know, had a problem with that and said, you know, well, I know these five people who are evangelicals who are all smart intellectuals. And so, you know, because of that, you know, evangelicalism can't be anti-intellectual. And his approach to intellectualism was really to me, 
that if you have read the right books and gone to the right schools and know the right answers to the right questions, then you're an intellectual. And it, and it, you know, I kind of tried my best in the moment to, to push back on that, but I thought about a lot. I thought about it a lot afterwards. And I'm curious how you would define intellectualism versus anti-intellectualism. But as I thought about it, one of the things that came to mind was if you define intellectualism as something that only elites can achieve, um, that's a problem. And, and, and I also just think that intellectualism there can be marked by two statements, which are hard to make, but which I think if they define your, your approach to knowledge and your approach to life um, are a good sign. And that's the ability to say, I don't know. And it's the ability to say, I could be wrong. And um, I think those two statements and the, the ability to embrace them um, as, as possibilities um, are a sign of somebody who's, who's willing to be, who's wanting to be intellectual about, about their life, wanting to be a student rather than a know-it-all. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious how you would define intellectualism versus anti-intellectualism. Yeah, so like, I, 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 so I, I, I suffer with the word intellectual in so far as you know, people will say well, it is a problematic term. Yeah, yeah. People call me a public intellectual or an intellectual, and I was like, that just sounds so haughty. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'll, 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 I will often use on this podcast as a way to sort of sound more, to sort of take some of the oomph out of it is um or take it down a few pegs is i'll just talk about okay we're going to get into some eggheadery now right and it's the same idea it's just when you say eggheadery you understand that some of these conversations um would incline some normal people to want to smash my guitar against the wall of delta house right i mean like and i i own that i i like nerdy stuff right and nerd is another word that i'm fine with um to sort of take some of the sting out of intellectual but at the same time, um, I'm, I'm it's very easy for me to con, con, condemn anti-intellectualism because that's a, it's kind of another thing in, in American history. And part of it gets to my critique of populism, which, you know, longtime readers of this have, have colored in this, this quote on their bingo card so deep the pen went through the paper. But um, populism is inherently anti-intellectual. Um, and... Um, because it emphasizes uh, passion over reason, right? And it emphasizes uh, grievance over um, persuasion, right? Or, you know, argument. And um, and so, like, my favorite illustration of this is this line from William Jennings Bryan, where he's the most famous populist in the 19th century, and also quite, a, quite the evangelical. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, the people of Nebraska are for free silver, Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. And I think democracy doesn't work without arguments. I like arguments. Um, I've written this a bunch of times over the last 25 years. The strength of the conservative movement before it went off the rails seven years ago, more or less, was its willingness to have internal arguments. Um, you know, and one of the reasons why it could have internal arguments and I don't mean internal negotiations, right? That's what the left had. The left was a coalitional group that had different factions that trade that, that horse traded with each other for power through the Democratic Party and through various institutions. There was no reason for the Teamsters and the Party of Gay Marriage to be in the same party. 
but such as it was. And um, so it was very transactional. The, re- the conservative movement um, or the Republican, you know, the right, broadly speaking, was ideologically or ideationally coalitional. And, you know, and, and the Reagan thing about how if you agree with me on seven out of 10 things doesn't make you my 30% enemy, it makes you my 70% ally or friend, really kind of got to some of it. But one of the key things that I always loved about conservatism, which I think has largely gone out the window now um, in all sorts of unhealthy ways, is that there was a good faith effort to admit that we had dogma and that we understood that our dogma um, could run into conflict with other dogma, right? So like one of the foundational texts of, of intellectual conservatism is this book called What is Conservatism? I wrote the intro for the new preface for it like 10 years ago. Um, and it's a collection of essays. It's gone by different names over the years, but it's a collection of essays by a bunch of conservatives of different stripes, a bunch of libertarians of different stripes, um, where uh, they argue about the, the, the contending facts of like there's, there's order versus liberty. This is something that conservatives are always willing to acknowledge is that at some point, liberty is more important than order. And at some other points, order is more important than liberty. And it's a healthy tension. The whole idea of fusionism was this healthy tension of different philosophical and moral commitments that at times rub up against each other. And, and so we would argue about it, right? And the left didn't have that. And so I think that intellectualism in the way that you're talking about it, um, rightly understood is the willingness to sort of, first of all, admit your priors, right? The willingness to say, here are my biases. This is what I'm in favor of. This is what I'm not in favor of. These are my rules of thumb or my checklist of principles. Um, but then you need this sort of, um, epistemological honesty that says, um, not all of my priors necessarily all fit together and that sometimes they are going to be in conflict. And in particularly in those moments, I may not know what to do, right? And I may not have the answer. And that's how you tell somebody someone is an honest and sincere intellectual, even if they have, it's not that they don't have priors. It's not that they don't have ideological commitments. It's that they understand the limits of what they know and the limits of, of what they can glean simply by a list of dogmatic principles. Cause dogmatic principles aren't going to answer real world questions in every instance. They're worth consulting, but they're not necessarily oracles that give you, you know, divine answers to everything. And that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and Andrew Sullivan uh, had uh, an Indiana professor um, on his show recently who wrote a book uh, called Faces of Moderation. And I think um, I've read parts of it. It does a good job of laying out how this sort of approach to um, argument, debate, conversation, um, and ideas uh, takes courage because um, one of the things we do to hide um, uh, you know, our gaps in our knowledge and uh, the areas in which we're deficient is just by pretending like we know what we're talking about. Um, and, uh, and it takes courage to admit where we have those gaps. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, like you, that's, that's always sort of been uh, a default setting for me, that sense of moderation. But I think in recent years, uh, when, I, when I saw that that guy's book had been out for a while and I started reading it. I just thought this is my 
politics. This is where I kind of would like to plant my flag um, because I think um, modesty requires us to acknowledge that um, we're amateurs on most things at best. And, um, and there's a lot of gaps in, in what we, what we think we know. And so if we have gone deep on a subject and we're, we have some form of expertise or some level of expertise, you know, go for it, be an educator, try not to be obnoxious about it, but, you know, lend that expertise to the public. And obviously the, we, as the public (laughs) need to work on accepting expertise, you know, to a certain degree. Um, but in all other things, be a student and, uh, and, and take that approach rather than, uh, pretending that, um, you know, you're an expert. So on, on, on the, right, first I want to ask a quick theological question and then I want to talk about the grubby world of actual sort of politics that people follow. Um, on the theological side, it has often been, in my experience, people of a certain kind of Christian tradition on the left. And there's a lot of people on the right and just pretend there is no Christian tradition on the left when in fact there's a massive Christian tradition on the left. But they'll often talk about Christianity as having a lot to say about helping the poor, for example, right? And um, which I think is a fair argument, you know? Um, There's certainly scripture to back back it up from what I can tell. But what is the theological argument? And you can give your own sense of how you score it, but like it does seem that conservative Christianity is much more concerned about sexual morality than it is about, for want of a better term, I don't know, economic morality or, you know, or, or being the good Samaritan towards immigrants and these kinds of things. I mean, what is, first of all, is there a solid foundation in new, I mean, there's lots of good stuff in my half of the book, you know, in the old Testament about sexuality, but like, um, it, what is the theological argument for why that is the thing that everyone should be much more concerned about than these other things? Or, or is my impression wrong? I mean, I, I'm open to that. Oh, no, I don't think it's wrong. I think what you're getting at is that a lot of evangel- conservative evangelicalism, uh, and I would, I, would, I would separate that from a form of evangelicalism, which is not referred to by outsiders or in, or those inside it as evangelicalism, but a lot of the black church is evangelical in a lot of its sort of theological commitments, but you know, most black churches don't refer to themselves as evangelicals. But I make that distinction because there's a big distinction in the big difference in how white evangelicals and the black church think about the application of their faith um, communally. And obviously, you know, Judaism has a huge emphasis on this, but uh, conservative evangelicalism is very individualistic um, and uh, is mostly focused on your personal relationship with God and on your personal behavior. And there is not a lot of focus on um, the collective or the community and on uh, systemic justice or injustice. And so I think that is part of why there's so much focus on sex. There has been, I know, you know, work done. I think maybe Kristen Cobus DeMay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, probably unpacks some of the other ways that sort of 
Uh, a political cultural movement has conditioned evangelicalism to be very um, focused on sex. Um, but I think a lot of that is coming from outside of the faith itself, from cultural, from political actors and movements and sort of in and historical, uh, you know, uh, currents and, and is sort of shaping evangelicalism to be focused on sexual ethics because, you know, Jesus did not talk about, um, sex very much. And, uh, you know, Paul did, uh, a, a decent amount. Um, but you know, I, I think it's helpful to understand the way that a lot of evangelicals think about the Bible. I remember one conversation I had with a relative um, about uh, one of Paul's epistles, uh, one passage, I don't remember which, but we were discussing it. And I, I just made the comment, like, Paul wrote this. And my relative said, you mean God said that. So there, that is that is the level of, um, I would call it fundamentalism, um, that a lot of people bring to the Bible. And I'm, you know, some of your listeners will get that others may not, but that that's, that's a challenge when talking to people about, you know, how to, how to interpret this book, because the Bible is really at the center and the way it's read is really at the center of a lot of, um, these issues that I'm, that I'm describing. Yeah. I mean, theologically, I, I just can't get there on that, that kind of thing. Um, I'm a, humans, you know, crooked timber humanity guy, you know, Jesus gets a pass in the, if I buy all the arguments because he's actually, you know, divine, but everybody else has to be human. And if they're human, that means that like, maybe they misheard God, um, or maybe something got lost in translation, you know, I mean, and there's a, there's a feeling of it. I think it pervades a lot of really conservative Christianity. There's a feeling that if I can see, if I were a conservative Christian and I heard you say that a human might've misheard God in one of the authors of one of the books of the Bible, if I were to concede that statement, I would have this feeling of I'm pulling a block out of the Jenga tower or I'm pulling, uh, you know, one of the pickup sticks out of the, you know, the thimble of pickup sticks. And this is the one uh, it may not cause the whole uh, house to come crashing down, but it's going to lead to other parts of this house getting pulled out. And it's and basically my entire way of understanding the world is going to fall apart. I do think that's a big part of what keeps people locked into that point of view. Yeah, no, so that's I mean, what's interesting to me about that. And, and I, I did not mean that as a point of trying to offend anybody. Um, but I've had friends convert to serious Judaism. I've had friends convert. And when I, when I say serious Judaism, like if I were going to become an Orthodox Jew, it would be no less a conversion than if I become a Orthodox Muslim, just the, the level of commitment and, and, and transformation involved would be pretty significant. Um, I know people who've become very serious Catholics. Um, that passion of the converted thing. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that part of the thing that makes the passion of the that provides the passion is that they don't know. This is what I was getting at about at least the Catholic church knows where to bend where other institutions can only break. They don't know like 
which rules you can kind of skimp on, right? Which rules are um, um, mandatory and which rules are, are, you know, optional is probably the wrong word, but in a day-to-day kind of way, optional. People who grew up seriously Jewish, they kind of know, like, it's not the biggest deal in the world when they're not kosher at some event for something or they didn't check, you know, to make sure everything was kosher all the way down, that kind of thing. But people who have just embraced that life, they embrace it in totality. And um, because they have that psychology, this is my theory, at least, they have that psychology of like, I can't be the one to pick and choose here because I'm, I'm all in. It's like the people who become Marines and sometimes, you know, they have to do it all perfectly. And what's inter- always been interesting to me about some forms of evangelical uh, Christianity, including I've had friends who became charismatic Catholics, whatever, is that that spirit of the passion of the convert being institutionalized in some way um, that I just find a real hard to imagine how you sustain that over time. Yeah, I I obviously burned out. I, I tried to just like live it to the letter all the way. And it just like totally crushed me. Um, But I think of my parents' generation and I think that uh, it's hard for me. I I do write about my my dad in particular in the book a lot, mostly uh, positively. Um, But he's still very, he and a lot of people in that generation are still very much where they were in a lot of ways in the seventies and eighties. And, um, I, I guess the, the, the best way I can say it is I just don't understand that. Um, because to me, I, I resonate with the way somebody like David Brooks has written about faith, which is in the two mountains, which is that it's, it's a force for, um, in my mind, a life giving process of continual, change and movement forward and learning. And if, if the point of faith is to simply provide us with a security blanket, I get not adopting that. But if the point of faith is to help us uh, be on a lifelong quest for pursuing ultimate reality as best we can know it, to me, I don't see how that could be anything other than something that is constantly evolving and iterating um, and growing into something that is constantly kind of new. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I did want to say something um, about the new convert thing. I have, I have been kind of struck over the last several years at the ways in which uh, new converts have, have been such um, I can think of, of a couple of examples offhand, but they've been elevated um, to places of prominence as spokespersons for, you know, their movement or whatever. So Rob Amari is one that comes to mind. Um, uh, even Adrian Vermeule. These are both people who have who have endure, uh, experienced pretty dramatic, I think, conversions fairly recently. Um, it's been several more years since uh, I went to that French uh, SORAB debate at Catholic University. But at the time, I think this was probably four years ago now, but at the time, I think Sareb had been um, uh, had been a convert for 
four or five, six years or so at that point. Um, and I think the problem, which I kind of alluded to earlier, is that if somebody is a new convert and they have all the characteristics that you described of uh, excessive certainty, excessive self-confidence in their own point of view, and, and a sort of rigidity and black and white view of things, and an extremity, um, and then they get elevated to a place of prominence and they develop a career and a following based on that, that I think is what partially locks people into staying in that place because their financial incentives are now to continue to churn out the same sort of, um, you know, point of view rather than being able to evolve, which is one of the things I'm, I'm grateful to journalism for, which is that it does give you space to, you know, be a student rather than, um, a, a dogma dispenser. Um, all right. So I said, we we're going to get into the nitty gritty of, politics here for a second so let's let's do that with the time we got left um how to do this so all right so so keeping with the the high-mindedness of this conversation so far I'll, I'll back into this um one of my favorite books it's not for everybody um it's a bit of a screed is this julian benda book from 1920 something um that it's it's called the treason of the intellectuals um in the original french it was the treason of the clerks a clerk was a broadly defined concept. It wasn't like just the, the guys at the DMV. And, um, and one of the things that helped me understand was when I was working on my first book about fascism and nationalism and all these kinds of things is how Christianity, you can always tell one of these, these sort of, um, pernicious isms is going too far, right? Is, is, is becoming, um, toxic when they start trying to make Jesus into the original progenitor of their philosophy. So in the 1920s and the 1910s, there was all of this. Jesus was the first socialist. No, Jesus was the first nationalist. No, Jesus was the first eugenicist. Right. Um, and, um, uh, seems to me like you can make the case Jesus was the first Christian, right? You know, or maybe that was John the Baptist. I don't want to get into the theology too deeply, but he wasn't the first eugenicist. I think we can probably <laughs> agree. And, um, and you find that it, it gets wrapped up in this concept of the chosen nation, right? So like, you know, the French thought they were the new Israelites. Everybody thinks they're the new Israelites and therefore they have a special access to Christian authenticity and authority that other nations don't have, which can lead nations into all sorts of trouble. Um, when it is weird how, and partly it's the problem of, of Twitter amplifying moon battery and making it seem more popular than it really is. But the number of clips I've seen recently since the talk about Trump being indicted that have said that Trump is being treated, you know, that, it, that, that the treatment of Trump is recalls the treatment of Jesus, um, has really been remarkable. And in sort of MAGA world, it's talked about a lot. There was even this kid who's a former Trump uh, White House guy who, in this much mocked post on Twitter, compared DeSantis's criticism of Trump or refusal to, to fight for Trump on this indictment thing, um, recalled nothing if not Lucifer's, Lucifer's rebellion against God, which 
I'd like to see the work on that one. Um, anyway, so interesting exegesis. Yeah. So I guess my point is, is like, um, to, to bring it into the world of politics, but like, can a church that has decided that Donald Trump has divine qualities, that Donald Trump is King Solomon or Jesus like, or whatever, uh, when Trump is gone and eventually he will be, how does a church, how, how does a denomination recover from that kind of capitulation to letting politics swamp even the most any defensible form of liturgical or doctrine uh doctrinal you know loyalty to christianity yeah i mean that's clearly what a christian would and probably others would call idolatry um and uh i'm not a theologian i think a sociologist would call it idolatry exactly (laughs) yeah And I'm not a theologian, but it sounds like heresy. Um, and how does a church or a denomination recover from that? Um, I guess we'll have to see what the next generation. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm Gen X and you've got a couple after me. And I, I guess you have to see where, where the predominance of, of, of those generations go that are coming up in these cultures. And, um, it's beyond my ability to predict where all this leads, but essentially those who reject that kind of idolatry will have to, I think, organize and, um, and maybe it means a new denomination. Um, I really, I really don't know. I think the way that the, the, the method of redemption is simply by slowly living out the faith, um, with integrity. Um, and then in terms of institutions, you know, probably repairing old ones and building new ones, but that's all kind of like pablum in a way. It's not really any kind of insight. Um, but I'm not sure what more I can say. Yeah, but that's the thing about integrity. The the, the, the thing about integrity, the, the 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 worst thing about integrity is it's kind of obvious, <laughs> you know, and and therefore boring. <laughs> um, and I keep I I struggle with this, you know, because like I wasn't necessarily where you were 20 years ago, 15 years ago with conservatism and all that, and. And I, I, I want to say that I'm still loyal to conservatism. I believe that I am, but like it's being defined away underneath my feet. And, and so what I try to resolve to do is just live my intellectual life with integrity and not give up ideas because they are unpopular with the side that I'm now mad at or because they're unpopular with the other. I mean, and that's, that's, it's hard to do because you realize how much of a social creature we all are including in the realm of, of intellectual affairs. Uh, there's another, I'm going to quote another Bible verse, but there's a, a verse where it says that the way uh, to eternal life is, is narrow and, and hard and, and few find it. And I think a lot of times Christians interpret that as saying, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of almost like a, a Gnostic thing. Like it's, it's almost secret knowledge. And only the chosen ones of us, you know, have the insight to to find this truth and 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 find the way to god and actually i think it's might it's possible that it's just saying that actually you know the 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 ethic that christ laid out um makes demands on his followers uh namely to you know embrace weakness rather than domination and to um to live in a way that's vulnerable and sacrificial and that's just hard it's not hard to find it's just difficult 
And um, and that's a similar point to what you're making about integrity. It's it's pretty obvious. It's not complicated, but it's a lot easier uh, said than done. Yeah, I mean, this gets to the point that David French used to make all the time. I'm sure he still makes it. Um, when Christians would talk about, well, we're persecuted, you know, or we're looked down upon, or um, the left is declaring war on Christianity and all these kinds of things. You know, part of David's response is, well, you do know that like Christianity, you're, that's sort of the, the lot you've chosen, right? Because Christianity is supposed to be something that you adhere to through adversity. And if you look at the first couple, you know, dozen generations of Christianity, it was, I mean, no one's being fed to lions here, right? But you know, like, oh, they're saying mean things to you about, about you on late night television. Right. But I think that's also a problem with evangelicalism is that our ideas about persecution are off because there seems to be a dynamic where a lot of times evangelicals seek almost to provoke a reaction by doing something um, that's public facing or outrageous or provocative. And, um, and the emphasis is on like taking a, a public stand in a way that there's sort of an implicit admission that other people will be offended or, or bothered and then will criticize you. And that is the persecution rather than uh, living your life in a way that is requiring sacrifice, um, voluntary sacrifice. Um, that is uh, not maybe that might not be fit the category or definition of persecution but that is the kind of, I think, suffering that Christ called his followers to. Not, you know, see you at the flagpole to pray once a year. And when people sort of sneer at us, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I think you know this about me. I'm, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's. I've made that oh. fairly clear. And um, I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want this podcast to end without you knowing that. Um, uh, and I have no limit of criticisms for today's GOP and the big chunks of the right. I think that, you know, the rise of the sort of Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, and then further out to the, you know, the back, the back booths of the star Wars cantina has been terrible for conservatism in America. That said, I am more and more committed to a, both sidesism approach to um, our political problems. And this, this annoys a lot of people I consider good friends and certainly allies and all sorts of causes to no end on both sides. Right. Um, and the only stipulation that I feel compelled to make on that, or the only concession I do, is it's not symmetrical, right? The left controls institutions. The right has no access to. And that means what the left does is going to be different than what the right does in these culture war fights, like the, the left controls to one extent or another, the top 150 elite universities in this country. I don't think there's any real arguing about that. And you can point to the, you know, like the random conservative here or there that doesn't change the fact that they're outnumbered five, 10 to one, you know, same thing with the role of DEI and, and, and all that kind of ESG and, you know, Hollywood, I think those are all fair. So like, like there's an asymmetry here that, um, uh, 
makes glib both sidesism difficult. That said, if you look at America's cultural problems, deep-seated cultural problems, they're more American problems than they are problems of the left or the right. And so the one, the one that the reason I bring this up is we live in a victimology culture where people, there is enormous cultural cachet um, and opportunities for monetization to claim you're a victim, right? I've been canceled by the left. You know, I've been silenced by the right. Um, um, you know, it was, I always thought it was so funny that basically every right-wing platform, media platform um, on Twitter and Facebook marketed themselves as the ones who'd been like censored or canceled or uh, deplatformed because that was actually where the money was, right? Which is not how, you know, if they were actually deplatformed, you wouldn't be able to market yourself as deplatformed, right? It is sort of like echoes of banned in Boston as a, as a marketing tool for books. And the Christianity part of it is very much part of it is that there is this cult of victimhood, this sort of martyrology that you see all over the place. I mean, you have, it was really interesting to me to watch Matt Schlapp respond to as of yet unproven allegations that he did very bad things with a male, uh, campaign aide in Georgia. Um, and the, the marketing, the sort of the public PR campaign for it was to talk about how he was a victim of the media, right? Um, so much claiming victim of the media status gives permission for people to do unbelievably terrible things and say terrible things as if like, oh, well, the New York Times or MSNBC hates what I said. Therefore, what I said wasn't hateful um, is like one of the hallmarks of the sociology of the very online right these days. And I think it's a problem for the online left, but because both sides are so tribal about this stuff, they can't see it as an American problem they see it as a problem that only applies to their enemies. Uh, yeah, I don't have a problem. I don't have a solution for the problem of victimology. But one of the things I've been fascinated by recently is the topic of free speech and the intersection between uh, stuff like the big tech criticism on the right and the response of the left to incidents like the one at Stanford. Because what's fascinating is that um, you'll have Facebook or Twitter doing content moderation, which anyone who has spent more than five minutes uh, invested in talking and learning about social media acknowledges is necessary. Uh, Trump's own Truth Social platform does content moderation. It's just a question of like, what do you censor and what do you not? But a lot of people on the right, I mean, uh, Kathy McMorris-Rogers did a hearing about this yesterday, are saying that, you know, the, the right is being censored by big tech. And I'm open to, to being persuaded of that. But as of yet, I have not seen really a lot of evidence of that. There's some smoke about around some of the things that were done uh, around COVID. But I've read all the Twitter files. I've gone through them. And uh, it's not a smoking gun for, uh, for anti-conservative bias at these companies. I think the biggest concern or the biggest sign, sign of evidence of concern 
to me is the political donations of of the employees there. That there's obviously you know political bias among the employees there, but we need more evidence of actual you know elevation of or or, or suppression of speech um, based on political point of view. And again, I'm open to that, but it has not been proven. But a lot of people on the right will say, well, the answer to speech you don't like is not to censor it. It's more speech. That is the same talking point that was used by the protesters at Stanford who wanted to shout down uh, Judge Kyle Duncan. And I guess, uh, and, and I thought the the memo from um, the Stanford law dean, uh, Martinez, a 10-page memo laid out the ways in which the heckler's veto um, is not, you know, constitutionally protected and not protected under the rules of Stanford, and that's why she, the the administrator, the DEI, the DEI administrator, has been placed on leave. I thought it was a very well done memo. But I think the problem with a lot of these things is that people focus on um, the behavior, the personality, the views of the individuals, rather than on um, the structures and the rules and the systems. Uh, in place there. And so if you're from the left and you're looking at Stanford, you're looking at Judge Duncan and um, and you're saying, you know, not only does he have views that I don't like, but he conducts himself in a way that is somewhat provocative. And so that justifies sort of um, treating him badly or shouting at him or whatever. And uh, And if you're on the right, then, you know, you're looking at the behavior of the protesters and you're saying, you know, what do you expect? Judge Duncan to do other than to, to hit back the way he has. Not a lot of people are talking about what Dean Martinez is focused on, which is what does the First Amendment say about speech? Um, how does that shape the rules of Stanford? How does that reflect on, on how uh, the associate dean of DEI um, conducted herself in that situation? And how is that going to dictate you know, her status at the university? and how we conduct um, these, these things going forward. That gets back to the faces of moderation. This is, uh, you know, we need, I, I think we need more people focused on how do we set up structures and rules and incentives and incentive-based systems um, that allow for civil debate, fierce at times, but productive debate um, to go forward rather than focusing on, you know, the things we don't like about the individuals and their views. Um, and I think all of that is part of what Amanda Ripley calls complicating the narrative. Um, she argues that the more that you do this, the more people are interested. I, I'm not sure I agree with that, but uh, I hope that she's right. Yeah, I mean, we're both disciples of Yuval Levin. And, um, um, you know, and Yuval is working really hard along with some other folks, Andy Smerick, some of my colleagues at AI, and on trying to come up with a robust explanation of and defense of republicanism, small r republicanism, rightly understood. Like everybody wants to talk about democracy. No one wants to talk about republicanism, but republicanism, and there's an argument that maybe republicanism isn't the thing that people are saying it is, and it's complicated and interesting, and I have my my views on it. But whatever word we're going to use, there has to be a word for the idea of institutions that are essential to a democracy that are not necessarily internally democratic, right? Um, this is something that you and I, you know, uh, have spent a lot of time on is the, the first podcast I ever heard you, your, uh, first long game I ever heard was uh, sent me down this rabbit hole on a lot of this stuff because I, you've all had recommended it. And, um, 
about how the parties have given up the ability to nominate, to pick their own candidates, right? And you had Elaine Kmark on, it was really useful. Uh, that prompted me to have Elaine Kmark on here. And um, um, this idea that because the Republican and Democratic Party are essential to a democratic system, that therefore they need to be internally democratic, is this unargued article of faith. And I personally think, I won't put words in your mouth, it's crazy. Um, and there are all sorts of institutions that would be ruined if they became democratic, starting with, say, the Marine Corps um, and, um, and the American family. Right? You just cannot have all the kids voting on everything, right? And, um, and similarly, universities are essential to a thriving democracy, a thriving liberal democracy. That doesn't mean that they should cave into every dem internally democratic impulse there is. And I have no problem with a school that says, hey, look, during Q&A, you can ask whatever harsh question you want. But if you're saying to a visiting speaker in the hallway, I hope your daughters get raped, at minimum, you should be suspended, if not expelled, right? And, like, and they're supposed to be training friggin' lawyers to be professional officers of the court. Can you imagine what would happen to you as a lawyer if you said to a client that they walked into the firm or if you said to opposing counsel? Something like that. I mean, that is no way to train people and um, or to educate people. It's no way to be, to live. You know, there's no integrity to that kind of thing. And so anyway, my point is, is that I think that the, the, the really hard project, both in politics and in religion and in culture, is this project of rebuilding institutions that serve real purposes that um, externally are essential to democracy, but internally are about more than just simply channeling, you know, the, the passion of, of, of crowds. Yeah. And Dean Martinez, uh, in her memo talks about this as well. I mean, she says, I'm going to quote from it cause I found the passage. A university is not just a platform, which is actually Yuval's language, uh, not just a platform for speech, but is itself a speaker with its own first amendment rights, the university itself and prerogatives to edit the message it conveys to its students and the world, including messages about the importance of free speech. That it is an atmosphere in which there prevail the four essential freedoms of a university to determine for itself on academic grounds who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. Um, and so she's asserting a pretty aggressive, you know, institutional prerogative there as, uh, some, as, as, as an institution that can determine uh, its values and its conduct, um, from, from the leadership, uh, from the leadership down. And, uh, that I think is what you're talking about there. Um, so, you know, in, in the electoral space, I've been more focused in recent years on how we can, on, on the efforts of those who are trying to structure the primaries in ways that channel, um, you know, channel things in, in a, more moderate fashion, because um, I don't know that you can get the genie back in the bottle when it comes to parties at this point. No, I think you're probably right, but that, that doesn't mean I can't hate primaries. Um, all right, John, I've kept you too long. I apologize. Um, um, it was great talking to you. I hope you'll come back on. So um, it's great to have you. It's good to do this kind of calisthenics with you. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard keeping up. Okay, so John Ward has left the uh, studio. Um, it was great to talk to him. I know this was a conversation at times at a high level of abstraction. 
Um, but uh, this is the life you have chosen um, by listening to this podcast. And uh, um, and I think John's just a really great guy who takes important things really seriously and tries to live and work in a in an honest and in decent way and full of integrity. And so I was delighted to have him on and I hope to have him back. You should also check out, um, there's a dispatch YouTube channel. If I had the URL for it, I would give it to you, but I don't. Um, but you can probably find it in the show notes for this very episode. And, um, other than that, um, I got, I got nothing. Um, and, uh, other than that, I'll see you next time. Uh, no, 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 you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.